Well, there may be some churches in the Appalachian Mountains that can handle serpents, but I'm not sure they've tried their hand at red wasps yet. One just flew by me again a second ago. We shall see. Um, a, um, I think it was earlier this week, maybe last week, I was listening to a sermon, a debate, uh, a debate between a couple of men, and, and on one, one side you had um, a, a gentleman by the name of Greg Bonson, um, and, and a reformed apologist, and, and on the other side you had a man who grew up Jewish, and so he was accustomed to all of the Jewish tradition, had been trained in the law and Torah, and his argument was that if the, if the Bible were true, that if God existed then what God should do is actually show Himself. That, that's what He owes me. If He wants me to believe in Him, then what He needs to do for me right now is show me that He exists. He needs to prove it to me. And so, of course, we could go into all kinds of considerations of, well, what does it mean to prove it? Uh, what would it take for you to believe in God? Um, and, and his argument was, well, he needs, he needs to update the Bible for one, you know, our... Our way of believing, our ethics have changed over the years. We don't want to listen to what these goat herders had to say from long ago. And, but, but at the end of the day, we're dealing with the idea of this, of unbelief and, um, God owes me something. He, he needs to give me a sign. And if he gives me a sign, then I'll certainly believe in him. And as we come to this passage of scripture, we're seeing maybe a similar idea here that um, there is this warfare, this ancient warfare between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the, of the devil and all of those who are in that kingdom, the kingdom of the devil, the kingdom of unbelief, demanding that God prove Himself to them. We see here that Christ... A man is brought to him who is demon-oppressed. He's blind and he's mute and unable to come by himself. So he has some friends that, that carry him over to Christ. And Jesus, out of His love and kindness, heals the man. He, he demonstrates His own power in that He undoes the effects of the fall in this man's life. This, this blindness and muteness. This inability to see and speak. Jesus undoes it. Was it by a word? We don't know. Was it simply by the, an act of His mere will? But what we see in this man's life is that the kingdom of Christ comes to bear upon Him in this way. That Jesus undoes the temporal effects of the curse. And of course, when Jesus wins a battle, when an enemy wins a battle, what, what happens? What takes place? Well, that man's enemy is increased in his ferocity, in his hatred, in his animosity. and tries to undermine him. This event connects us back to what we've just read. If you'll look again at um, Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 and following, or verses 15 and following, notice what we see. Um, Matthew drew our attention to Isaiah. He, there's this odd moment where he just sort of plops down these words of Isaiah into the middle of his gospel, and, and we're saying, well, how does this make sense to us? 
Remember what he said, quoting from Isaiah 42, picking up in Matthew 12, verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. When is how long is he going to do this until he brings justice to victory? Why does Matthew put it in this place? Why does Isaiah's prophecy make sense at this point in Matthew's gospel? Well, I think it's because of what follows as much as because of what's behind it. Jesus is one anointed by the Holy Spirit, filled with wisdom from on high, and the righteousness of God proclaims the kingdom of God and is bringing Victory to the kingdom of God. Rolling back the power of the devil. Displaying his power. And what we see in this passage, Matthew 12, 22-32, is a tale of two kingdoms. Here you have the kingdom of Satan and his representatives paired against the kingdom of Christ and the son of David and the son of David proclaiming his victory and power over the kingdom of Satan. Let's notice it just in in two simple points. First of all, I want you to notice a dying kingdom, a dying kingdom as this is in verses 22 to 27. Notice that there are a couple of responses to the healing that Jesus had had conducted over this man. First, we see the people. How do they respond to Jesus healing his exhibition of power? How do they respond to it? Well, they stood in awe. Look at verse 23. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? Their, their minds are thinking, immediately they think, um, okay, who in our theology, who in our understanding can have sufficient power to do what he just did? And they say within themselves, perhaps, maybe this is the son of David. Now, if you could look at the Greek text, you would understand that the way they ask the question actually begs a negative answer. So there's the, the answer to this would be, well, maybe, but probably not. So still, within their hearts, there's a mixture of unbelief. They're wrestling with who Christ is. They've made at least a little bit of progress. They're not saying, well, who is He? Now they're beginning to associate His power with the Son of David, a, a ruler from on high. But then we notice the Pharisees. They hear this. They see that the people, at least from a a mental, um, just a, a purely mental idea, are starting to put two and two together. They're starting to say, here is one who has actual authority. He teaches as one who has authority. He heals as one who has authority. And what does that stir up in the Pharisaic heart? Jealousy. Notice their response in verse 24. Hearing this, the Pharisees said, Oh, it's only by Beelzebul. 
It's only by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. That's the explanation for his power. Stop listening to him. Stop uh, paying attention to him. The reason that he's doing these things, the way that he's doing them, is by the prince of the demons. His power is a satanic power. It is evil, not holy. It is unrighteous, not righteous. It is unclean, not clean. That is the only way that He can do the things that He has done. His work is demonic. You must flee from Him. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, Response to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. Jesus rebuts the response here. It is, and, and notice that he's, he's simply using logic with these men to argue against them. It, is Satan divided against himself? Is that his scheme? Are you suggesting that in order to bring about a victory for his kingdom, he is fighting against himself in this world? Is Satan's kingdom divided? Why does Jesus ask this question? Well, because division results in a certain destruction, doesn't it? A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. It will be laid waste. It, it reveals its, um, its weakness to its enemy. If, if you are divided from one another, what's going to happen? Your enemy will lay you waste. You're vulnerable. If you can't agree on a strategy, how will we go forth? How are we going to uh, conquer the city that's opposed to us? And you fight and there's inner fighting within you. You will not prevail. Is this true of Satan's kingdom? Well, I think there's an important thing to meditate upon at this moment. That there is division in this world, isn't there? That we can immediately think of the division between conservative and progressive or conservative and liberal, a Democrat and Republican. We, we can think of the many ways that we are divided from one another all the way down into our own homes at times. Where does that division come from? Why is there division? Well, because there's a sovereignly administered division. Notice how this takes us all the way back to the garden. There is a sovereign warfare that is presided over by the sovereign Lord Himself. Remember we looked at this over the Christmas holiday. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, God said, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between her offspring and your offspring and he will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. This is what we see worked out throughout redemptive history. I would take you to Genesis chapter 11. You remember what happened at the Tower of Babel? Men were united, but they weren't united in a righteous purpose, were they? They were united in their effort to ascend up into heaven, to go beyond the rainbow boundary, to invade heaven, and to take God off of His throne. And how did God judge them? Division. Division. 
This is one of the ways that you can identify a work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit brings order, harmony, unity, love, joy, peace, patience. What does the devil do? He brings division. This is his work. He wants to divide. He sows division. Turn over with me to Titus chapter 3. This is why Paul issues such a strong final warning in Titus chapter 3. I want you to look at these words with me in Titus chapter 3 verses 10 and 11. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful and is self-condemned. Why is that? Because he has become an agent for the enemy. He is not an agent for the kingdom of God. How do we know that? Because the kingdom of God and the work of the Spirit of God brings love and joy and peace and patience and unity amongst the body of Christ. So when you see a man seeking to sow division, reject him. No question, no argument, once, twice, done. Because you know who he's operating in behalf of. Of. This is Satan's scheme. He wants to divide us. One from the other. He wants to entice you to give in to your selfish lusts. Not to think about loving your neighbor first, but about putting yourself first. Why? Because a divided kingdom cannot stand. And he knows that the future of His kingdom is destruction. His kingdom is dying. How does He know that? How does Satan, with such ferocity and animosity toward the people of God, know that His kingdom is dying? Because Christ just rolled it back. That man, healed by Christ, and the power of the Holy Spirit, that ability to speak, that ability now to see, shows everybody that Satan's time is short. Jesus goes on. He says, notice, some of your sons cast out demons, don't they? Some of, some of them have been granted by God to to have victory over Satan. And if I cast out, in verse 27, demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. I, I think what Jesus is saying here is they will be your judges in a temporal sense. If you go on attributing to the devil the work of God, your own sons are going to drag you into the synagogue and they will sentence you. You know that this is wicked. And yet you persist in your evil hardness of heart. The, the kingdom of Satan is a dying kingdom. 
And that's why we see this ferocity, this lashing out against the work of Christ. As such a simple act as to heal a man, to make his life economically better, materially better, better, better in every temporal sense. He can go fishing now by himself. How could there be such hatred against such a kind act? Because it exhibits that Satan's kingdom is dying. But there is a living kingdom. There is a kingdom that's bringing life. There is a kingdom that's bringing liberty to men. There is a kingdom that's bringing goodness and the graciousness of God to men. And so we secondly, we see in verses 28 to 32, the living kingdom. Jesus continues in his response in verse 28. But and this is this is a major contrast and and we need to take this in. But if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now you see why it was so important that Matthew just before this quoted from Isaiah, don't you? If Jesus is casting out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And what did Matthew teach us from Isaiah 42? What or by whom is Christ anointed? The Spirit of God. Matthew is showing you that this, in fact, is the right conclusion. Jesus is casting out the kingdom of darkness and all of its servants by the power of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, the only conclusion is what? The kingdom of God has come. But now you remember, don't you? This is exactly what Matthew has trying to been to show you from the very beginning. Turn back with me to Matthew chapter one. You remember how he begins his entire gospel with the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and he goes, he he walks you through generation after generation after generation to show you that this man, Jesus, is a descendant of David. He is a king. Turn over to chapter 4. We hear it from the Lord's own Mouth. After his baptism, Jesus says this, chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so all of his preaching, all of his miraculous work is to show you that the kingdom of God has come in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. His work is to roll back the darkness of the dominion of Satan. And so he, so he shows us three important things here under the living kingdom. That this kingdom is powerful, that it is forgiving, and that it is final. Notice with me that it is a powerful kingdom. Look what Jesus says about it in verses 29 and 30. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless 
he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. What does he mean by this? Who is the strong man? You know that if you go in to, to rob a man's house and he's got a Rottweiler or a Doberman, the first thing you've got to do is throw some meat in. Somehow you've got to distract that dog, tie him up, chain him up so that he cannot attack you. Jesus is saying, look, what you've seen throughout my earthly ministry is that man by man, person by person, what am I doing? I'm plundering the devil's house. I've come in with no effort whatsoever. I am driving out demons. I cast them out. I heal men. I deliver them from the curse. I am giving them the promises of a new covenant, restored life, restored vision, restored strength, restored hearing. What am I doing? I am showing you the power of resurrection. I'm showing you the power of life. I'm giving you a new hope, driving back Satan's kingdom. What can you conclude except that I have bound the strong man? I want you to turn over with me. Um, let's go to Daniel chapter 7. We, we've looked at Daniel chapter 7. Numerous times it is a very important chapter because it speaks to us of, of the Son of Man as the one who ascends up to the Ancient of Days. It is a depiction of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice verses 11 and 12 especially. I looked then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, the horn is a reference to David or to Christ, the son of David. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. And now turn over with me to Revelation chapter 20. Here now, Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So as we come back now to Revelation chapter 12, we've got this imagery in our minds that one of the things that Christ would do in the power of the Holy Spirit is bind the devil, seizing his power, limiting his power, especially to do what? Deceive the nations. For this reason, Isaiah, as he opens his gospel, says what? The nations will flow to Christ. Why? Because the devil's power has been limited. And Jesus himself says that he has been bound. The strong man has been bound. It is a powerful kingdom. Do you know how we see this today? 
One of the things that I was regularly thankful for in seminary is that God continued to raise up godly men to proclaim His Word. And I would encourage you, uh, when you become discouraged about what's going on in the world, jump over to the website of Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Go to... Reform Theological Seminary's website. Go to Greenville Seminary's website and just look at the number of men enrolling year after year, semester after semester. And what is their ambition to preach God's Word? Go to the to website of Master Seminary and look at the size of their incoming classes. They're not small. When you become discouraged, Notice the number of men that God is raising up to proclaim His Gospel. The number of men that God is sending out around the world to proclaim His Gospel. The men in places like China who are remaining steadfast preaching the Gospel even in the face of hot persecution. Christ's kingdom is a powerful kingdom. And this is why in chapter 13 of Matthew, we're going to go through all of these parables related to understanding the kingdom. Notice, secondly, it is a forgiving kingdom. Verses 31 to 32. And praise God for this. We've talked a lot about forgiveness this morning. Jesus says there, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. And just very simply, as we think about it, we we look at this passage and we immediately say, well, what is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Who does it? When is it possible? Before you go there, just notice that Christ promises forgiveness in this passage too. You know that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, one of the ways that the Apostle Paul describes himself there is he says, I was once a blasphemer. I was once one who observed the work of Christ, and I attributed it to the devil, but He forgave me. And I think one of the things you ought to take away from this passage is that the kingdom of Christ is one founded on forgiveness through Christ. And the hope that He would offer you is that this powerful, prevailing kingdom is one that invites you in. It is one that invites you to receive rest and security. That even a temporal failure to acknowledge Christ as the God-man will be forgiven. It is a kingdom that is powerful. It is a forgiving kingdom and it is a final kingdom. Here's the hard part. Not all sins are Forgivable. Jesus does say 
that whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. And I'm, I'm sure that you've heard lots of explanation. There are those who say, well, this is a reference to, to men who observe Christ's power at that time. They attributed it at that time to the devil and therefore they cannot be forgiven. Perhaps a key element here is that Jesus, He doesn't even accuse the Pharisees of doing this. But we are to think about it. In Judaism, there were several different kinds of unforgivable sin. If you took, if you took sabbatical oil and you took your saddle or a piece of, of leather and you took that sabbatical oil, and you use that holy thing to rub that piece of leather to make it shiny, that was an unforgivable sin. If you uttered God's name on too many occasions, committing blasphemy, that was an unforgivable sin. If you were to mistreat the people of Israel, that was an unforgivable sin. Do you see the theme here? The holy oil, the holy name of God, the holy people of God, if you take those things and you treat them as common, as ordinary, as something to be thrown away, that was considered unforgivable. And I think similarly, Jesus is teaching us that what is unforgivable is to take what is holy and done by the Holy Spirit. Done by Him. If you harden your heart against that, if you reject it and treat it as something common and ordinary, it is unforgivable. Every unrighteous man rejects God's work. You think about the scientist, don't you? Who spends all of his time in God's creation, examining it, doing, putting it under a microscope, doing genetic testing upon it, and coming away and saying, this is ordinary, it's common. Day by day, hardening himself against God's work. Perhaps submitted himself to the judgment of God and will never repent. I had a man in seminary, a professor, whose sister had served as a missionary in a foreign field. And she came back home and she rejected the faith. And my professor said, she will never have the opportunity to repent again. Jesus I don't think leaves us with quite that certainty with reference to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What Jesus teaches us, I think, is that there is such a thing and that those who harden themselves, that their ultimate demise, that those who harden themselves against the work of God, the ultimate condemnation is that you rejected all God revealed to you both in His natural revelation and in every minister who came to you in His behalf. And I think it's appropriate to 
to say this at the end. That if you feel conviction and you wrestle and you say, well, I, I hope I haven't con- committed the unpardonable sin. I hope I haven't done that. Then you haven't. If that sensitivity remains to the work of God in your own life and you are convicted by your sin and you find yourself confessing your sins to the Lord on a regular basis and seeking your His forgiveness, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. Jesus, remember, invites all men to enter His kingdom. He invites all men to know rest and peace through the forgiveness of sins. He and His holy angels rejoice to give men cleansing. Even those who at one time denied Him. But here He reminds us of this simple thing. That forgiveness will not always be available. There is a temporal window when you may receive it and those who harden themselves against His work, even calling it evil, will die in their sins and face eternal punishment. Therefore today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. While it is called today, come to Him who invites you and receive cleansing and forgiveness. Come to Him and receive everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for Your love for us. Thank You especially that You've demonstrated this love by giving Your Son for us. We ask, O Lord, that You would make our hearts all the more sensitive today. Understanding that Christ's kingdom is a final kingdom. It, it, he, is, he is conquering His victory and we see uh, the, the finality of His kingdom that, that we are in the last age because He's rolling back Satan's kingdom, plundering His house. But Lord Jesus, we ask that You would work in our hearts by Your Spirit to make us Your friends. To know Your forgiveness. We pray in Your name. Amen.